Welcome to the Jiu-Jitsu of Life, a weekly podcast for BJJ enthusiasts who are striving to succeed both on and off the mats. This podcast is brought to you by Robles, makers of the world's finest custom jiu-jitsu apparel. And here are your hosts on the Jiu-Jitsu of Life, Carter Fisk and Mo Siddiqui. No, yeah, that's when you know your friends, when you can be comfortable in uncomfortable silence, right? Like like me and my brother, we can literally be in the same room watching a movie. Yeah. And like on TV on TV and not talk for the entire movie. Yeah. Right? It's nice though. Yeah, it is nice. Not a, I'm not always a fan of talking during the movie because it's yeah. like I, I realized that I have terrible multitasking ability. So if somebody is like if I'm reading something and someone's talking to me or if I'm watching something and someone's talking to me, it's like one of them, it's like one of you has got to go because it's like yeah. I literally will hear nothing that the person is saying talking to me or I will hear everything they're saying and hear nothing. Like I, I never, it's not even a blend. It's like literally 100% and 0% one way or the other. I'm the same way. So and actually, it's so funny that we're talking about this right now because we just had a conversation last night about etiquette during a movie. Yeah. And what was acceptable and what was unacceptable. And so there was some talking going on during the, during the movie. And I was like, everybody just shut up and kind of lost it for a little bit. And which led to the conversation about, okay, so what's acceptable, what's unacceptable. Here's what I said. I said, it's a, this is acceptable conversation during a movie. I'm going to go get some popcorn. Does anybody want anything? This is, this is acceptable conversation, right? Yeah. What's unacceptable is having a conversation with another person that has nothing to do with like, m- like movie, yeah. you know, like if you're not going to go get me some like jujubes or chocolate almonds or something like that, um, then why yeah. are we, yeah, we shouldn't yeah. be talking, we shouldn't be talking. Let's save it for after yeah. the movie. Yeah. Let's save it for after yeah. the movie. Yeah. yeah. No, I agree. I agree. I always, and I hear this too, that, um, supposedly men are much worse at multitasking than women are from a, they say from an evolutionary point of view, because we're mm-hmm. hunting, so we need to be laser focused on the prey versus women. It's like you've got the potential kid crying in the background. You've got this, that. So they have to be able to focus on many things because mm-hmm. my wife can listen to music with like lyrics in it and write at the same time. And it's like, I can't even do that. Like if I start listening to the lyrics and it's like, I'll start typing the lyrics. Like I need like white noise or i need like just like you know the waves and the ocean but not even too loud mm-hmm. i don't want it to be too loud i want to start go do one thing yeah i just i Real can't good. and once yeah once i realized that it was it's was actually very freeing because it was like i i'm no longer trying to bs myself that i can actually multitask because that's Nor do i want to I yeah i don't need multitasking. i don't either so yeah. i don't know why i try i think i tried to do it because it was like this form of socialized thinking where yeah which we'll talk about in first principle yeah. thinking a lot yeah. of socialized thinking but you know, where everybody was like, you want to be successful, successful people multitask. And now, yeah. right, like we've talked about this before, about the experts. And now yeah. there's experts coming out and saying that no, multitasking is for idiots. What were you thinking? Yes. But yes. what happened, what happened is that we took a form of socialized thinking and accepted it as a truth. Yes. And we never questioned whether or not that truth was actually true. Yeah. Yeah. And now that we have, we're coming to find out that we've based all of our principles on a house of cards. Do you think, let me ask you this, because I've noticed this with people, specifically like some people that I see on YouTube and stuff like that, that were like comedians or different things like that, sort of very 
vanilla, for lack of a better way of saying it, pre-COVID that have become very political post or, you know, whatever, during COVID type of thing, and very much distrustful of a lot of stuff you might say, like the the sort of um, the thinking pattern with that, you know, very much sort of distrustful of authority or, you know, that kind of stuff and, and starting to question a lot of the expert opinion type of things in a way that I don't think they would have done had there not been something like COVID. And I guess my question is, do you think that that has sort of created more first principle thinkers? Like can a pandemic, I guess the question would be like, can a pandemic or something that is unexpected, some sort of black swan event, create more first principle thinking simply because you start seeing what happens when there is not first principle thinking? Does that make sense? That does make sense. And that's a very good segue um, into a very real situation, a big situation that the world has gone through. I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know if it has, to be honest with you. Um, I think maybe for some people, some yeah. people for sure. Yeah. What do you think? I throw it right back at you. What do you for, think? Uh, definitely. And, and, you know, I think Naval um, said that COVID accelerated everything. So if things were, for instance, if more people were going to work at home, COVID mm -hmm. just made that happen faster. If more, you know, sort of consequently, if more office space was going to be converted into something else or, or whatever it might be, that happened faster. So is he, is he trying to say that these things were inevitable? They were going to happen as, yes. a, as, uh, as a consequence of techno uh, technology advancing? Yeah. But we were just forced into a position where we had to rely on technology almost immediately. So that makes yeah. a lot of sense. That does make sense. Yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, because I mean, good grief. Like now when we start talking about first principle thinking, right? Like the fact that we have to work from an office was something that we accepted as a, as like this socialized truth. Yes. And it was no, actually what the socialized truth that we accepted was that people could not be productive unless they came to the office. Right. Yes. Yes. And, it wasn't until they were forced um, to actually stay at home that people began to question whether or not that that was true. That's yeah. Well, so let's, yeah. let's start here. Tell yeah. me what first um, what first principle thinking is. So basically, um, it is a a practice of breaking complex thoughts into smaller components that can be analyzed and said like, what do we know to be absolutely true? And it's a, it's, a, it's a lot of effort in order to, to do this, but it's a good way of really learning how to make decisions in a way that is not using analogies. And what I mean by that is analogies are always like, oh, well, last time we did this, so this worked, or this has always been done this way, or, or of course we go to the office. That's, that's what you do. We have a business, you have an office. That's what's done versus asking the question like, well, what if we didn't have an office or do we need an office or why? Do we have an office? So it's really asking the question why. It's it's almost when we talk about finding your why, and a lot of times that's just saying, you know, sort of your your first why statement, and then literally asking, well, why do I think that? And then digging it down further and further. And a lot of people tr um, sort of trace this back to Aristotle. They say that Aristotle was sort of the first one to really sort of put this into words and talk about the methodology of, of mm. essentially getting to the truth. So that's my long-winded answer for first principles thinking. Yeah. 
but and the yeah. the getting down to that common denominator, right, is going to be different for everybody based off your circle of competence, right? Yes. yes. Well, what's interesting too is is even talking about things like office. I always feel like the pendulum swings way too far one way, and then as a as a result, as a reaction, it swings way too far the other way. And what I mean is this, like. Yes, there's going to be a lot of people that are probably never going to go back to an office again, but there's also going to be a group of people that realize they actually do need the office because they've had sort of essentially two two years of, of experimenting with not having an office and being like, listen, it's not as productive. Or if it is something where it's a collaboration, there's a difference between collaborating in person, bouncing ideas off each other. Oh, I'm going to go into Bob's office and tell him this the energy that you get, you know, when you think of like a, a, an early startup type of group that you don't get through Zoom, you just don't get it. Like there's, there's just a different type of energy. There's a different type of thing. And there's people that work way better in an office environment because the reality is like, you know, some, you know, some people like a gym at home. Some people like to go to a gym. There's sort of different mentalities and some works for some people and some works for other people. And I think with the office, it's going to be kind of the same thing. I think there's going to be a resurgence of people going back to the office at some point. I'm betting on that financially, too. So we'll find out. But I, I think that's going to be I don't think it's but I think it's probably going to be a net loss. So I think there's going to be fewer people that work in an office five years down the line or 10 years down the line. But I think it's going to be a lot more than is right now. Like, because I think really the question was never about, I mean, that was almost a secondary underlying question, right? Whether or not someone can be more productive at the office or at home. Yeah. But really the, the, the root question started as can, can the world continue to function by no one going to the office? And right. what's been proven is, yeah, yes. absolutely. But we believed <laughs> for a long time that no, like yeah. you're supposed to wake up at this time. You're supposed to have your eggs and drink your coffee. Then yeah. you're supposed to get in your car and wait in traffic uh, on I-35. Yeah. If you live in Austin. Yeah. And um, and then you get to the office and and uh, you sneak your way to your cubicle and you pretend to work yeah. uh, for a little for, for you know you you get you get one hour of real work in and then yeah. the rest of the time you just uh, pretend to work and you watch TikTok or whatever it is you do to to kill the time. Well, it's like the movie Office Space when he's like, you know, I guess I, I get about, you know, 15 minutes of real work done a day. So I just go in the office. I just I space out for an hour. It looks like I'm working, but I'm just spacing out. Like, And I think there is a lot of sort of unproductivity that really was questioned. Like, do, like, why are we doing any of this? And I think that ultimately I think it's good. I think it was good that that companies were able to ask those questions and employees were able to ask those questions because I think it's um, – you know, when you want it, the, the only thing I think about also, though, is that, you know, when people are just stuck at home, there's no more work environment the way there used to be. And for some people, that's kind of devastating. Like you want a home life and you want a work life and you want them to be separate. And for people when it's not or it's like literally I'm just going into another room, especially people that are very extroverted. I think that's it's been really tough. Because it's like, sure. and I think a lot of them wanted to get back to the office. But see, that's the thing, though, right? Like going back to the to the premise of the question is whether or not the world could function yeah. by not having an office. Yes. Because I don't think that the companies care one way or the other, right? They didn't care if you – they didn't care like – like so many times people have said, wouldn't it be great? Like 20 years ago, people were saying, wouldn't it be great if we could just work from home? 
right? In companies yeah. where I'm like, I don't care what's great for you. <laughs> yeah. You're coming to work and you will yes. be here at this time and you will clock in, right? Yeah. Um, and I think, I think you're absolutely right. There's people that are actually going to complain about not being able to go to the office yeah. and not having their being with that work tribe, if yeah. you will. Yeah. And companies are going to be like, I don't care because I'm saving a ton of, I, I realize that I'm saving so much money by yeah. not having an office, by yeah. you guys working remotely. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because, you know, that has always been something that a lot of people look at as like the dream life. And the, the, the example they always say is like, you're on the beach and you got your laptop and you're making money. And, you know, that, that can be a reality for certain people and certain things, but it's been interesting to see, like you said, there's a lot of stuff that was, there was a lot of fluff that was not necessary and, and didn't need to happen. But I think there's also been things that people have realized, you know, we thought this was fluff, but it's not. It is necessary. And as a as an investor, it's I think it's a good way to kind of look at this because you can start saying like, well, what kind of businesses are ones that are going to need an office? Like, what are things that you can't zoom your way through, literally? And, you know, things like doctor's office and dentist's office. And, and there's certain things where it's like, they're always going to need an office. And how do you cater to them as an investor? And what can you do to sort of up the product that way. And then other things, I guess you'd look at it from more like what will probably never need an office again. And that's just been an interesting thing to look at. And again, I agree with Naval. I think that's interesting yeah. from a first principle perspective, using first principle as a mental model as a real estate investor Yeah. to yeah. try to decide how are you going to market location, right? I have this building. What am I going to market as? And you have to come down, you have to get down to the root yes. um, The and, and try to figure out what is going, what, what is better in terms of what can function without an office, what can function, what, what has to function with an office, right? Like you're always going to need a location for like, a, uh, I guess if you're a mechanic, right. And you're doing oil changes or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And zoom yeah. that, right. Yeah. You like got, one you got to physically company, take your car there. Yeah. One of my tenants has a computer sort of parts business essentially. And I was there when he got all his stuff from California and it was literally like six trucks worth of stuff going in, you know, stacked up 24 feet high worth of things and, you know, different racks and all this crazy stuff. And he's got all these forklifts and all, all this stuff. And it's like, man, like this dude needs a warehouse. I mean, there, there's always going to be the need for physical stuff. Um, but I, I don't know. It's going to what I'm what I'm most curious about is. Some of these big offices, you know, here in Austin, we got the we got Dell. Michael Dell started in Austin, and they have hundreds of thousands of feet of office space. And you know, there's the Apple campus and Facebook and and or excuse me, Meta uh, and a bunch of other places have rented out huge swaths of office space. And I'm like always wondering, well, what what are they going to do if they get even like 20% of their workforce working from home now? That's a lot of office space not being used. Mm -hmm. And it's like, what are they going to do? Maybe are they going to try and entice people to the office? I mean, that's one idea. It, it, do they want people at the office? Or does a business ultimately, like you said, maybe they don't care because it's less overhead. If you have to rent less office space, then that helps your bottom line. And if you're able to, you know, some of them are arguing that they're going to pay people a little bit less because they're like, well, we don't have all this, you know, office space and you don't have to commute as far. Hey, if you want to get people to go back to the office, uh, tell them you're going to pay them less. Yeah. <laughs> So it's it's just been interesting. I'm talking to people. I got a buddy who's a lawyer in, in L.A. and he's like, yeah, I'm, he's like, I, I like going to the office because, you know, he's got young kids and just he it's a 
10 minute commute and all that kind of thing. And he's like, yeah, there are days where it's just literally me and the head of the law firm. And it has, they have, I think like 50 lawyers that work there. So it's literally just two out of 50, a lot of the times now versus two and a half years ago. Yeah, for sure. uh, An attorney does not need an office. No, no. In the world. Yeah. Yeah. So what's interesting about a lot of this, I think is that, um, it's a, it sort of teaches you a systematic way of, of working through problems. And the one who, Elon Musk is sort of the example that on one article that you sent me where they talked about that I really liked because it's it takes fundamental things that people look at as impossible to do or impossible to do a certain way. And it starts breaking down these impossibilities by asking the right whys. And with Elon Musk, it's so SpaceX. He starts SpaceX, and 20 years ago, he's like, I want to start sending rockets to the moon consistently. I don't want this to be a, you know, and, and the big barrier with all that is it's like $65 million just to buy a rocket. And so a lot of people, most of us would just be like, well, guess I'm not buying a rocket. Yeah. But Elon <laughs> Musk is like, well, why is it so expensive? And they're like, well, because it is. And he's like, okay, no, but why? And they're like, well, it's made from this, this, and this. And he's like, well, these materials, if you add up all the materials you need in a rocket, it's like 2% of the cost. So why is it so expensive? And they're like, well, it needs battery packs. And he's like, okay, but what's in the battery pack? Like, why is that so expensive? And basically came down to the mentality of, well, why don't I just learn how all the different parts, what all the different parts are, what they need, and how do I build all the parts? And then I built my own rocket instead of bought one, and I'm going to save myself a ton of money. And now I'm going to give myself sort of autonomy because now if something breaks, I don't have to wait for this part manufacturer to do this. I can build the whole thing myself. And obviously, like, this isn't necessarily the type of thinking that you're going to use in your everyday life because this is an enormous amount of mental effort. But I think for for real problems, for things that are um, real sticking points, I, I think it's a great mental exercise to do. Um, and if I can be a self-indulgent douche, um, I will do that on just some of the commercial stuff that I've worked on because there was there was I had such a big mental block on doing anything commercial, doing anything new construction, and of doing anything office space too. And yet, literally, I just got my first tenant commercially for new construction a month ago. Hey. Just, and then it just bought my first office um, on Wednesday. And I already got a tenant on Thursday who is a, a national tenant. So, you know, Nate, like- was, like it, a, was that a form of like, were you accepting some sort of socialized truth? Or were you just, was that just um, negativity creeping in, um, you know, fear uh, being this uh, false reality appearing true type of thing? Yeah, you know, maybe, I think it, you know, really I think what it was, and it sounds kind of silly and juveniles, is I had met some different developers when I first started real estate um, through different ways. One through jujitsu, actually. um, One through uh, his kids were tenants of mine when I had a small apartment building. And they both ended up going bankrupt. They had very different personalities, but I felt like both of them were just so much smarter and more accomplished than me that I was like, I'm never going to be able to do this. And I don't want to take the risk of being like this guy who's doing these huge things. And all of a sudden you're literally like one of the guys that I knew better. Like he'd look at his phone and put it down. I'm like, who's that? He's like, ah, it's another creditor. Like, cause he was that, you know, just hounded by creditors all the time until he fully went bankrupt. 
Uh, ironically enough, now he's a financial advisor. So, uh, hey, but I'm, he'd probably make the best financial advisor. Yeah, right. right? Exactly. These, these are the mistakes I did. So, yeah. um, so I, I kind of looked at it like, okay, and and one the, the guy, one guy I knew better went to Wharton, you know, the School of Business, and I'm like, okay, I. I went to a state school, you know, I'm not, I'm just not this kind of guy. Like, this is just not for me type of thing. And I just, that was my mentality for a long time. So we can and call that it is a socialized truth yeah, that for some sure. people accept, right? Like, sure. I, I don't go to this Ivy League school, right? Like Donald Trump, yeah. didn't he go to the business school of Warren? He went to Warren as well. So, right? yeah. And, and so, yeah, for sure. You accept this socialized truth. I yeah. think that's part of it. I think that's part of like, it, it, it really is almost going back to that matrix analogy of figuring out what rules can be bent and what yeah. rules can be broken. And yeah. in re in reality, um, what someone like Naval says, and actually people that use first principle thinking, someone like Elon says, is that unless it's um, controlled by one of the laws of nature, which can't be broken, yeah. then everything should be questioned yes. about what's possible, what is impossible. Yes. Yeah. So I, I agree. And so, so as I had this sort of mental block, um, I, it, it really sort of ended about a year and a half ago when I was out in Lubbock. And I remember I was looking at a lot of industrial property cause I'm like, okay, I think I'm finally ready to buy, but I want to buy something that's there and, and, and fix it up. Even though I don't know how you fix up a warehouse type of thing. Like, and so I started talking to the guy and he's like, well, this one, the ceilings are too low to be sort of functionally obsolete. So you'd have to do this, this, and this. I'm like, well, what do you think that would cost? He's like, oh, at least $100,000. And I'm like, there's no way. I'm just like, I was just like, okay, it's not for me. I'm just going to go back to whatever. And then he he literally said something that I, I think in hindsight will change will have changed my life forever. And he just said, well, have you ever thought about building? And I went back to that thing. I'm like, no, no, that's not for me. And like, and he just, he just asked the simple question. He's like, well, why? And I'm like, I was like, I don't know. I don't really have a good answer. So this thing that I said was impossible, that wasn't me, that, that I could never do, I didn't have an answer as to why. I just, this just was. And I started, and he's like, well, have you ever done the numbers on it before? I'm like, no. And he's like, well, it would cost, you know, this much a square foot. And and this is how much you could lease it for. And, and here are some builders that I know. And, and this is how much time it would take. And if you're worried about it, you could do one here and then get that rented out, then build another one here. And, you know, he just sort of explained the whole thing in a way that felt safe enough that I could listen to it, if that makes sense. You know, because sometimes when somebody says something, a whole bunch of new things, you're just, you kind of shell up a little bit. It's too much. But he kind of presented it in a, in a piecemeal way that made sense. And I just started thinking about, it. I'm like, why do I keep thinking that I have to do this one thing? Like, what if I tried this other thing? And then literally within a couple of weeks after meeting that guy, another broker I knew in Temple called me and he's like, hey man, there's a, there's a lot for sale that I tried to develop a few years ago. And I ended up developing another one, but this one just came back on the market. And I was like, all right, let's, let's give it a shot. And that's, you know, that's where I have my warehouses now. And it was just, it was something that I just was so convinced that it was not for me and all these things. And I'm not saying it was easy because it's not been easy at all, but it's nothing that I don't think I can handle and nothing that I don't think I can handle at a bigger level too. And sort of once I started doing that, it, it leads to more wise. And I think that's what I, I like about this kind of thinking is that when you get on the track of thinking this way, then my next thing is, okay, well, it's so expensive to build now. 
And I'm like, well, why? And, you know, you start asking these questions. Well, what if I could do this? What if I could do this? You know, maybe it makes sense not to build one, but what if, it, what if you build four? Well, now that kind of starts making more financial sense per thing. And it, it leads to a different type of thinking. And ultimately, I think that's why we're such in such favor of this, because it gets you out of small-minded thinking on things. It makes you understand how to really problem solve. And you can use this for things like jujitsu. You can use this for a lot of other stuff that's physical, but you can definitely use this for business as well. And I think that a great example is you with the painting company versus you with the moving company. Because on the surface, it's like, why did one appeal to you? Well, I'm going to ask you this question in a second. Why was one a yes and one a no? And do you also think that by saying no to the moving company, that made you actually make the painting company a yes? Is it by understanding that all the no's that made a painting, the moving company a no, did that make the painting company make you realize what would make it a yes? Does that, do you understand what I'm asking? Yeah, for sure. Because I mean, that essentially is, and I think you and I have always been inclined to think this way uh, since some of the early podcasts, we've talked about reverse engineering and to a certain degree, uh, or to a large degree, that really is what first principle thinking is about, is you're reverse engineering something. So take, for example, if you have a car and you want to understand how that car works, uh, someone that really uses first principle thinking is going to take apart the engine and he's going to understand from the ground up like how this car really, really works and functions, right? And like we were saying earlier, that depending on your level of competence, your skill level, like let's say you're not a mechanic, you're not going to get down maybe as far as someone who is, um, you know, a mechanical engineer. But that's okay. You can still use first principle thinking to get down to the lowest denominator that you can get to and then start to build up from there. To answer your question, yeah, I reverse engineered both businesses now that I think of it. And really it came down to just looking at what it cost to do each business, not just monetarily, but also in mental stress yes. and is how I created my, my decision. And when I put them both side to side, um, the painting business won hands down because it was much more or less, less overhead. There was much um, less in terms of what I considered a higher, there was a higher probability um, for lawsuits. And for me, that comes into play when I'm factoring whether or not I want to start a new business. Um, and then there's always the inventory uh, uh, part of it. And with the yeah. painting business, you don't really have to carry inventory until the client pays for the job. So essentially you're using other people's money to pay for the inventory. Whereas as you continue to scale a moving business, you can start buying trucks. You can start buying bigger and bigger and bigger trucks and trailers, and it can really get out of hand. I mean, those things aren't cheap, right? And so for me, when I look at creating a business, what I came down to the first principle thinking, the foundation of, that I build off of is I look at pretty much three things. I look at first, can I start the business with relatively zero to no, to no money? And there's really a lot of businesses you can, especially if you're in the service business. For example, let's say you're a bookkeeper, right? I can sell you my service. I don't have to, it's a skill that I have that I'm selling you, right? Um, if you're an attorney, things like that. Um, so that's the first thing. It doesn't cost really a lot of money to start those types of businesses. Number two, I, I look at the element of risk. Like what is the probability of me being sued? Because I don't care how much money you give me, uh, having peace of mind is priceless. And I, and, and, and that's going to be different for everybody. 
Mm-hmm. Um, some people are, are quite fine and they've never been sued in the moving business. But for me, it was just a fear that I had. And like I said, some, a lot of fears are just these um, false realities appearing true. But in my head, it was true and I was going to get sued and, uh, you know, and, and I didn't want to have to go through that stress. Um, so I, I eliminated that. And then the final for me is uh, can how easy it, is it to develop systems where I don't have to be there to run? And in my mind, uh, being the type of person that I am, the way my mind works is that uh, a lot of times when there's a lot of stress of, I believe that there's a high probability of liability, I have to be the guy that's there to manage it, to make sure yeah. that it doesn't happen. Yeah. And so I look for businesses where, um, like I love e-commerce, right? Because e-commerce is very easy in terms of, I mean, it's very difficult to get sued in an e-commerce, you know, doing an e-commerce type business. Yeah. Um, and so I look for businesses like that, but that's, boiling down businesses to what they're, you know, what they are fundamentally, and then working your way up from there and deciding for yourself what works for you, uh, what doesn't work for you. I think why a lot of people don't use first principle thinking, I think actually a lot of people do use first principle thinking, they just don't know that they're using it, but they're reverse engineering problems without knowing it. But why, why are so many people um, they get to the point of like when your child asks you, right? This is one of the examples. Yeah. Like well, why and why and why? And it's like you keep yeah. going and you go and you go until you can't go anymore. And you're like, well, that's just because it's always been done that way, right? Yeah. And um, I think uh, the reason why a lot of people do this is because it's about comfort zone, right? Like at, to a certain degree, it, it does take a lot of mental energy for you to go figure out why something is the way it is. And, and to a large degree, people would, I think a lot of people would rather just be like, well, this is the way it's always been done. So they will, they will comfortably and calmly walk to their doom in a lot of ways when it comes to business, right? What I really love about first principle thinking is it, as I love the idea of questioning what is true, what isn't true. I, I am at a point in my life where a lot of what I think is because it's socialized thinking. It's because my parents thought it. It's because my friends thought it. I'm at a point in my life where I want to take a step back and I want to question all my thoughts and beliefs and figure out whether or not they are really my thoughts and beliefs, or do I simply believe these things because my friends believe them or because my parents believe them. And in order to do that, you have to reverse engineer a lot of your thinking. But I think at the end, you'll be a lot smarter and you'll know yourself a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's funny, actually, I'm from a jujitsu point of view, a wrestling point of view. Um, I've been doing this lately. Uh, the underhooks, you know, that sort of clinch game. I'm working more on hand control, elbow control, a lot less with the underhook because I, something that I looked at as, as a goal to get, I'm seeing a lot of the negative effects with people right now, strong wizard games and stuff like that. So it's, it sort of challenged my whole idea of what the objective is and something and, and opened up a lot of new interesting possibilities. And it's something that I'm not quite sure, but it started just sort of coming around, just messing around with stuff with Reed. And just, it's, it's more and more just into all my training sessions with anybody. And I'm seeing like, okay, this is good because now I can see their hands their whole time. A wise man would say, you got to see the hands there will kill you. Yes. We'll kill you. Right. Which <laughs> that, but I mean, like, you know, I mean, that's, that's an important thing for weapons and, and fighting and all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's sort of changing my style on something that I felt like I was good at already. And something I felt like, okay, I know this. I took steps back and I go, well, why do I think this? And, and what are the downsides of thinking this? What if I'm wrong? And, and asking yourself all those questions, I think is a really good mental exercise to do with everything in your life on a consistent basis. Because it's, you will change. And, and I think that 
what is so good about you with the the painting business and then Robles is that you boiled down to what were the essentials of both businesses that are similar. Because when I tell people, my God, know this guy, top five in the country in 2005 <laughs> in boxing. You know, I mean, I say, and I go through your whole resume with people and I'm like, yeah, he's got a, a custom jujitsu gi business and a painting business. And it's always like, they seem so different, but they're not in terms of the, the points of what you said in terms of inventory, in terms of, you know, less likelihood of getting sued in terms of just sort of all the things that you've learned that matter to you about a business. And then things that might sound similar, like, oh, what if he's going to do a gi company? Shouldn't he start doing like the way, um, you know, show your role does or whatever? It's like, well, no, even though that sounds like it's the same business, it's not. Because now we're talking about inventory and we're talking about, you know, economies of scale that can work in the bad direction, sort of in both directions, but certainly in a bad direction. That's not the same wheelhouse as, as what he's doing. So it's more than expanding that company, it would be finding maybe a third or a fourth business, you know, that, that could be, you know, a landscaping business or something else that that really kind of fits in that same model of business. And I think by doing, but I really think a lot of that was predicated on, on seeing the moving business and seeing these are things that could go wrong with it that I just don't feel comfortable with and I'm not going to get comfortable with because I know myself. Okay, what businesses don't have those things? And that created a new filter for you that's going to allow you to find more businesses and more ones. And then maybe at some point you'll revisit this and be like, am I comfortable with these things? Now? Okay, no. Okay. I'm gonna, but what if, but why, you know what I mean? Like, and, and it's good to kind of bring that back. So it's, it's, it's been an interesting passenger seat of mine to watch you start different businesses and see the, the through line, the things that matter to you. And, you know, it's, last sort of a little tangent here, but I, I met up with a buddy of mine who's an investor who's invested in, like weirdly, like before we even met each other, we had invested in a lot of the same places in Texas, like random small places and knew a lot of the same people. It was weird. It was like people out in Tyler, brokers that we knew and, and you know, contractors we had both used and all this kind of stuff. And I haven't seen him since, since COVID started, I literally hadn't seen him in two years. And it was interesting because he's still kind of doing the same thing. They're like, they're in Waco, they're in Llano, they're in Tyler, they're in here. Like for people who don't know Texas, these are places that are four or five hours apart from each other, way far away from each other. And he's like, ask me what I'm doing. I'm like doing commercial and temple. That's all I'm doing. I'm selling everything else. And like, I should have everything else sold by the end of the year. Like, and it was, it was like nice to know, like I had realized like, one of the reasons I had not gotten to the next level of success is I've been trying to do so many different things that I wasn't focusing in on one place and one type of asset. And how can I get more depth instead of breadth? And once I realized that, I mean, this year could end now and it's still probably the best professional year of my life already. And we're in the middle of February. I mean, it's just in terms of like value add that I've added to those two properties. And I literally bought an office and had a $50 billion company as a tenant the same day I bought it, like which, which vastly increases the value of that product or that property. I think it was the best deal I've ever done professionally. And, but it involved different things. It involved driving for dollars and finding an office that wasn't marketed properly and figuring out the negotiating and understanding the relationships of the person selling it to the person who owned it and just, and then understanding the relationship. It was, it was sort of a combination, the culmination of a lot of different skills 
that I've developed over the years. So to me, it was extremely satisfying to have that. And I didn't tell my, my lender until the morning of, I'm like, hey, by the way, I've already got a tenant for this. And it's these guys. And he's like, holy crap. And I'm like, I just wanted to wait till the lease was actually signed before I, I told I bet you they were super happy. He gave me a hug afterwards. How many bankers <laughs> give people hugs? So, um, so yeah, it was it was cool because I was like, and I was pushing to make everything happen on like that because I'm like, I wanted that sort of story ending. I wanted that Ocean's Eleven at the end when you're you're yes. at the Bellagio watching the fountain or whatever. It's like I want that moments. I want those moments in life sometimes. Yes. And I was like, I felt like I had a little mini Bellagio moment, but I didn't steal from a gangster, and I'm not going to go broke on a hotel, so I feel better. <laughs> You're not so. going to end up uh, in a hole in the desert. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> um, well, you know, one of the things that I, I, I'd like to maybe end on, and I don't want to ruffle any feathers when I say this, but first principle thinking. When you're using first principle thinking, that's a lot of times w is what's going to allow you to create something new. That's where innovation comes from. Yes. Innovation comes from that, and new things are created from that because people question the old. And, yes. and when they question the old, it's uh, once they figure out that no, the these things that they said were rules and could not be broken or bent is actually not true. Let's yeah. begin to try to bend them and break them. It's like, you know, an airplane, right? The people that created an airplane, the people that created the car, they were like, ah, you know, a, this large machine is never going to fly into the air, right? Yeah. Um, and people that go to the moon, right? Like. Uh, for a long time, people just felt like that, that was impossible. I mean, one of the best analogies uh, are not analogies. Um, that's completely the wrong word to use. But one of the best examples <laughs> yeah. was uh, how people believed that uh, if you would have went to a doctor's office in the 60s and 70s and said that, my, I, you know, I had stomach pain and they would have concluded it was an ulcer, they would have said that it came from stress almost 100 yeah. percent of the time yeah. because it was completely a, it, it was uh, uh, an accepted truth to believe that the stomach is sterile due to the acid that's created in the stomach. So therefore, bacteria could not live in the stomach. Yeah. Well, once be someone began to use first principle thinking, they started to question whether or not this was an actual truth or something that we just accepted as a truth. Yeah. And modern medicine has taught us that, you know, the majority of ulcers are caused from bacteria in the stomach and the bacteria can actually live in the stomach. Where I'm going with all of this is that New things are created when you use first principle thinking because then you begin to question rules that people have told you cannot be broken, but in reality, they can. Yes. This is going to apply to a lot of jujitsu. You're going to listen to your instructor. Your instructor is like mom and dad. Mom and dad, we don't question what they told us. It's an accepted truth. It's not until later in life we begin to say, hey, maybe mom and dad was wrong. Maybe it doesn't have to be done this way. Now, a lot of times mom and dad is right. They're wise, right? Because they have the age and, 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 and the wisdom that comes with that. But no one's perfect and people make mistakes and not everybody's right about every single thing, right? But it's not until later in life that we begin to question our parents. And I think you see this happen a lot in jujitsu, yeah. that the instructor says this is the way it is. Yeah. And the student will never innovate. He will never be creative. He will never create something new because yeah. he refuses to ask whether or not what his instructor said is, uh, is, is it, it, can these rules be broken or is this a law of nature that yeah. it cannot be broken and it cannot yeah. be tested in any yeah. given, in any way. I think you look at someone like John Danaher and, and, and Gordon Ryan and they're, and they're, they've innovated and, and there's been a lot of um, evolution in what we thought about jujitsu, you know, going back from when Hoist Gracie was competing in uh, the UFC yeah. to what jujitsu is now is completely different. Yeah. 
And it was different because people use first principle thinking and said, well, hey, maybe uh, you don't always want to get the underhook because then you get the underhook and then you have someone like the silver fox and he gets you in the split guard. Yeah. And now you're going to get armbarred. You're going to get omoplata. You're going to get triangle. Yeah. Right. So um, I would say question everything. Question everything. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 it's um, it's a fun. It's a good exercise to do. I mean, it's one I would say fun is not the right word necessarily. But, um, you know, the example they talked about, they talked about two different examples of number one, like in 1918 or 1914 some somewhere around there you know henry ford created the model t and a lot of people were like why would i need this rickety loud thing i got a, a horse and buggy who needs that it works perfectly well and there's plenty of horses there's grass why don't i want this thing a gas is expensive and blah 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 and it's like if that sort of old way of thinking about something had pervaded there'd be no cars um another example that he's more modern is is you know back when i was a kid you wanted something, you went to Sears, buddy. They got everything, man. They got appliances, they got clothes, they got electronic stuff. Man, Sears is the spot. Most Sears are out of business these days. So then it was like, man, well, because Sam Walton and his infinite genius created Walmart. So now we got everything, this huge store. It's got everything, man. You get lost in that place. You can do wind sprints in there. It's beautiful. And then a guy named Jeff Bezos said, yeah, that's true. But sooner or later, you're going to get tired of going there. You want to make a little clicks on the old keys on the computer, and it's going to come to you. And people are like, you're out of your mind. And he's like, I'll start with books. Let me see if I can put bookstores out of business. Boom. See you later, Borders. See you later, Barnes & Noble. <laughs> Just keeps going and keeps going. And now Amazon is way bigger than Walmart. And Walmart's trying to catch up and do a lot of the stuff that Amazon did. So there, there's businesses that people look at as like, oh, this is just going to be around forever. And none of them are. And if you look at the top businesses of 50 years ago, there's very few that are still around and relevant now. So, and a lot of that I think has to do with this idea of like, we got this figured, man. We understand what our customers want and, and we got this covered. And it's like, you do for now, but that will change. And, you know, I think a good example that we're seeing now is with Facebook, even though I think Facebook will probably be all right. And, and you know, who knows what's going to happen with Meta, but Facebook itself is something that, young people don't use. And it's something that was pervasive. Every young kid used it maybe 10 or 15 years ago, but now it's something where young kids literally don't even have a Facebook account. It's just older people. And a good rule of thumb is if your product does not appeal to young people, the clock is ticking. Because for the old people, we know the clock is ticking. So they um, <laughs> might drop. My yeah, I was gonna say, there we go, boom. Yes. Uh, to re-listen to this episode or to check out our older episodes, go to the Jiu-Jitsu of Life. Also check us out on Apple, iTunes, like, review, subscribe. Shout out to Robles, makers of the world's finest custom Jiu-Jitsu apparel. Nobody can be you better than you. Be authentic, Robles. We make custom geese. Yellow Pine Investments makes custom warehouses. Be sure to check them out. Check out our boy, Kalem Kalista, Sneaky Submissions. Check out Steve Hordensky, Jiu-Jitsu on the go. And check out Chaparral Moving. They have moving down to a science if you're in the Austin area. I am Mo, that is my brother Carter, and as always, we wish you guys nothing but the best, both on and off the map. Thank you for listening, guys. Thank you, guys. That's it for this episode of the Jiu-Jitsu of Life. Your hosts are Carter Fisk and Mo Siddiqui. This podcast is brought to you by Rulebliss, makers of the world's finest custom Jiu-Jitsu apparel. You can subscribe to the Rulebliss newsletter to get the exclusive content at rulebliss.com. 
You can find more episodes of this show on our website at thejujitsuoflife.com. And you can subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we wish you a great week, both on and off the mat.